We're going to talk about calling today because we're arriving in our study in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does some calling of his own, but we're going to dive in a little bit differently because we're going to tackle that section, that chunk of Scripture that we're arriving at here in Mark chapter 3. I invite you to turn to that if you'd like. But we're also going to be looking a little deeper into calling and to find out, does God still call people today? And if so, how? How can you determine if you're hearing his voice versus hearing some of the voices in your head or even from yourself? So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll start looking at our passage there in Mark 3. Heavenly Father, we're reminded in that song that you have been so, so good to us. And we just want to sing your praises. We want to thank you for that. Thank you for gathering all of us together, not only here, but as other local expressions of the body of Christ in so many different locations, because we know that there are millions of people doing what we're doing all over the globe. We continue to feel that sense of your presence and a sense of belonging as we commune, not just with you, but with fellow believers everywhere. Our hearts are with those in the Ukraine and with surrounding countries that are taking people in, refugees. Our hearts are with the people who had left Afghanistan in a hurry and are looking for housing. And we're asking you to help us become redemptive agents of your love so that they can clearly see Christ demonstrated as we come into contact with people who are in need. Thank you for your word. Thank you that every time we open it, you just bring new light out of it and you can shed that light right into our hearts and to speak to each one of us personally through your Holy Spirit. I pray you'll do that. I pray you'll do that today. And I thank you that you're going to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Sometimes God actually uses the phone when he calls. And I found that out because I had coffee with my retired pastor friend, Lou, who's been caring for his Alzheimer's wife for years now. And yet he still finds reasons to be joyful and to find the silver lining. He sees God's goodness all the time. And he said he was feeling badly because he had not been able to do much in the way of ministry for quite some time now because he's caring full-time for Doretta. He said, but after one of his morning devotional times reading in the Word, he said, God, I still want to do something for you, and I can't do much, but if you could call me into something, I'm your man. I would like for you to do that. And no sooner than he had finished that prayer than the phone rang, <laughs> and it was a fellow pastor who said, Lou, I know you're in a situation where you're trying to care for your wife, but can you get your daughters to come and care for her for just one Sunday? Because I really need you to fill in for me and to preach for me. Lou said, I had to say yes. <laughs> what else could I say after telling God that I would be willing to do that? So sometimes God uses the telephone. Kind of happened to me one time too before I went to Zimbabwe. It was my brother-in-law who called and invited me and my brother, my other brother-in-law uh, to go and teach in the seminary there in Gweru. But today let's look at two different types of calling. There's that initial calling where Jesus, like we're going to read in just a, a moment, Jesus looks at person and says, I want you to come and follow me. So there's that initial following, that calling. And then calling us to a specific task. Does God do that? And how so? How, so? how does he do that? So we're going to look at that. So if you look, first of all, for context, we always want to back up just a little bit to make sure that we're getting the overarching picture. So we're backing up to verse 7. Last week we saw, talked about the process of moving from being a member of a crowd, because remember those crowds had gathered when Jesus went over to be near the Sea of Galilee, near the shore, from the area where he'd been 
more village-oriented. And he had compassion on them, and so he healed many of them because they kept clamoring for him. So we moved from being a crowd, and then we looked at how some of these folks are going to eventually get drawn in to becoming closer in the inner circle, and that they will become a member of the community, an active, participating member of the community. So that's our context. And then Jesus starts to shed some light on how he's going to be starting to develop some people so that he can spread his message and get it out there farther and wider. And he's going to do that through these disciples whom he's going to call. And how do we know that he prayed first? Because if we're looking only at the Gospel of Mark for that, we might not see that. Because remember, Mark was the get-to-the-chase kind of writer. He was the action guy. And so he doesn't show that Jesus did that. But we see it in a different Gospel, Luke's Gospel. Luke 12 and 13 says, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night, the whole night. Some of you have had some sleepless nights, I know. And it's always good if we can turn those sleepless times into prayer times, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He prayed all night on the mountain, praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. So that sheds light on what Jesus did prior to what we're going to look at in Mark's gospel, whom he also designated apostles. Now, what is the difference? We should probably pause there for just a moment and say, what is the difference between just a disciple as an apostle a disciple is a student or a follower, and an apostle is one who is sent out. That's what the word actually means. And an analogy could be maybe sort of an apprenticeship. Back in one of my early jobs trying to earn a little extra money while I was going to college, I worked for a plumber who was also a bivocational pastor. So I would wave my arm on Sundays with him, and then I would dig ditches on Monday with him trying to earn some extra money. And so I was sort of an apprentice, but I didn't last long because I felt that I was feeling called to something other than being a plumber at that part in my life. Not to disparage plumbers. They are valuable, especially when you have a leak in your house. I'm so grateful for those folks who know what they're doing. But if you are apprenticed long enough with somebody in a trade, then eventually you get knowledgeable enough that they can send you out. The term used to be a journeyman. You say, this guy has his license. He knows enough that they can be sent out now. That's kind of an analogy to what happens between a disciple and an apostle. And we see in some of these areas that we're going to be touching on in uh, just a few weeks, that Jesus sends his disciples slash apostles out. And it's a little confusing because sometimes those words are sort of used interchangeably. But I think we should know that it's a process that went from becoming a pupil to becoming those who were sent out. And even after they were sent out on a couple of their first assignments, it became apparent they still had some more schooling to go through yet. There's one time when uh, Jesus came down off a mountain, Mount of Transfiguration. There were a couple of these disciples who were not quite well-versed enough in being apostles yet, and they were arguing. And what were they arguing over? About who's going to be greatest when they come into the kingdom. Ah. So clearly they weren't quite done with their apostle training yet. But just to get you to know that for, they're moving slowly but surely from discipleship to apostleship. Um. The real shift, I think, is something that becomes a demarcation if we're going to look ahead in Scripture just a little bit. It happened after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because after they witnessed the risen Christ, these disciples were truly apostles at that point. Because then they had the gospel to share, and the gospel was, we've seen him. <laughs> we've touched him. He's real. He's alive. This is the risen Savior. And that's when things really took off. So that was the demarcation was the resurrection of Christ. 
Why were they so powerful, even though there is one passage that said these unlearned men were speaking with such power and authority? How come? Because they had been with Jesus. So it says in Acts 4.13. They had been with Jesus. And that's good for us to know because we also know that Jesus can do amazing things through ordinary people who will submit themselves into his care and to be open for what it is he's got for us to do. Now, since none of us have been alive with Jesus on earth as these 12 were, we can't claim apostleship in the same way that those apostles were claimed. There were actually 12 of them. Of course, Judas took his own life. So then there were 11. They had to replace him with Matthias. Some scholars say that they think that the apostle Paul was the only true real apostle that was supposed to take the 12th place, and so Matthias wasn't really real. But it, it says so in the scripture that they cast lots, and God gave them favor for that. So I think he actually was a true apostle. Mark, I was reminded when you were taking us through that study in Judges, how there's a list of judges, and some people have this list that's this long, and another add a couple of others because there are a couple that fall into a category that you think, well, I guess they were sort of a prophet and a judge. So it depends on how you think about Matthias. I think he was an actual apostle. He took Judas's place. And I think Paul, who referred to himself as one, quote, unnaturally born, was also a verified, authenticated apostle because he had all the validation from God through his Holy Spirit in the work that he was doing. So I guess you could say that there were actually 12 apostles plus one of Matthias plus another. So it'd be 14 total if you're going to add them all together. That's not the important part. The important part for us is to understand that Jesus took these ordinary guys with ordinary jobs and did something extraordinary as he was starting to put his plan into motion to introduce the kingdom of God. Let's read that passage, Mark 3, starting at verse 13. I'm reading from the NIV. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, which parallels very similarly to what we read in Luke after his prayer time. And then verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out, there's that term, which means apostle, send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So he was not only calling them, but he was equipping them with authority and some special power. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, time out. Would you like to have a brief lesson on pronunciation of something that I've been mispronouncing almost my whole life? In American English, I keep trying to put some accent on that A, and so I've been saying things like Boanerges and things like that, and it's not Boanerges. Most of the people who are in the actual language, because I looked them up on YouTube to find people who live in the area who would pronounce that, and they say B-O-A like bow, like bow tie, and then ner like nerve, bo-ner-jes, bo-ner-jes. Now, you have to think, even though this is Greek, you have to think Italian, so how would you say spaghetti? <laughs> With your hand, eh, spaghetti, so bo-ner-jes. And that's what you need to say now, when you, and you can teach that to a friend this week. They will appreciate it of that, I am sure. Bo-ner-jes. Now, that means... And this is another something that's really, it's adding to this lesson that I'm sure you're just dying to know. What, what's the origin of that? Where did it come from? Jesus was doing a play on words which shows his playfulness because when he gives a nickname, sometimes he does so playfully and he does so here. It comes from an old Hebrew phrase 
that would be bene regesh. Bene, which means child of, and because they're men, it would be son. Regesh, almost in that regesh, the way they say it in Hebrew, you have to sound, it's almost like an onomatopoeia, because regesh means rage, sons of rage. And he was saying that probably with a smile on his face, because it's a Galilean twist of the Hebrew phrase, which means Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he did so playfully, and I love that, because it gives us an insight into this guy who loved these men that he was calling to be a part of his inner circle. So these bene regesh, which translates in Galilean then into sons of thunder. Now you know. Teach it to a friend, they'll appreciate it. All right, time back in again. In addition to these first ones that we saw, Simon Peter, James, and John, then we also have, starting in verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were fanatics. They were the political activists. And in fact, we read in history of Zealots who were continuing to come against like the resistance. They were the resistance against the Roman occupation all the way up until... A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was finally just torn up, and then they tore down the temple. So we've got a zealot. We've got a tax collector. We've got fishermen. We've got a bunch of yahoos in this group, and including Judas Iscariot, who even betrayed him. Interesting 12, is it not? And I would be thinking from my human perspective, Jesus, what are you doing, man? except that he had prayed all night on a mountainside prior to doing this, which means that God gave him the ability to choose the ones that were going to be carrying out his plan. And certainly he did. May the Lord add his insight and blessing to this chunk of Scripture, to the reading of his word. And just in case there are a few of you who might be wondering, wait a minute, I was reading in the other gospel over here just the other day, and they have a slightly different list. There are a couple of different names there. Let me clarify that for you, if I may. First of all, we know by comparing gospel accounts and because of different languages that were alive back then, we just talked about that in Growth Encounters a little while ago. We got Hebrew, we got Greek, we got Aramaic, had a little Latin scattered in there for the really smart people. And then we know that Simon is also Peter, that we know. I mean, most of us who have been in Sunday school or in church at all know that Simon Peter are almost used interchangeably. Very often when I talk about him, I'll just put the two together anyway so that it just leaves no doubt. Simon Peter, Petrus, the rock, play on words. He's the pebble. Jesus is going to build his church on the rock, which we sing about. Then there's Thaddeus, Matthew 10, 3, who's also known as Judas, son of James, and that's in Luke 6, 16. Same guy, but to make things even more confusing, in Matthew 10, 3, Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, is there in the King James Version. So by some scholars, they actually call Thaddeus the apostle with three names. So in case there's any doubt, now you know. Thaddeus, Labias, and Judas, son of James. Then we've got Simon the Zealot, another Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot, who is also known as Simon the Canaanite. So apparently he was a a zealous Canaanite which makes it easier for us to remember him because even though he's a zealot and even though he's from Canaan, he's still Simon. So that one's an easy one. Then there's Nathaniel, Nathaniel. We tend to Americanize that and put an I in there, Nathaniel. He's only mentioned in John's gospel, John 1.45, while in the other three gospels, which we call the synoptic gospels, which means seen alongside, because so many of them do parallel and clearly have used some of those oral traditions and some written sources that actually match each other. 
So we can see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the name Bartholomew. But check this out. In every time they're mentioned in these parallel passages, Philip and Bartholomew are always mentioned together, but never Nathaniel. And so when you put those two things together, plus a couple of other scholarship things, you, you can rest assured that Nathaniel and Bartholomew, same guy. Amen. And then we've got Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and the tax collector, Mark 2.14. He was also Matthew, as we see in Matthew's gospel, 9.9. Matthew is the Greek name, Levi is the Hebrew name, which shows us why there's such a difference in many of these names. And then, of course, there's the rascal Judas Iscariot. I doubt that anybody since that time has named their child Judas Iscariot. Kind of infamous. He betrayed Jesus. He was replaced by the 12th apostle named Matthias. And it was interesting how they did that. It shows that uh, they work in peculiar ways and God can work through things that we wouldn't probably use today. They cast lots to find out because there were a couple of different guys that sort of matched the description of somebody they felt could meet the need. And they said, okay, Lord, bless it, whichever one comes through. And so he drew the, the long straw, apparently, or whatever lots they cast and how they did it. And he became that 12th apostle in replacing Judas Iscariot. And we should know that Jesus actually did something out of the ordinary. He was thinking outside the box, and he started to rile some people and ruffle feathers, especially among the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, because by calling these pupils to follow him, he was stepping outside tradition. Tradition back then was that pupils would actually apply to study under a particular rabbi, like Galileo. Galaliel or Gamaliel, some of these others that Paul had become very conversant with. So he wasn't taking applications. He actually handpicked his disciples. So from the outset, he was doing things different, and so he was turning things on their heads. I want us to notice some basic things about these 12 ordinary guys. They were ordinary. They were ordinary people with ordinary jobs. They weren't students of theology they didn't have a pedigree because they had studied under certain very well-known rabbis in that region in that day. And I think it's great because it shows us that just as Jesus came as a helpless babe in a manger and he wasn't born to a wealthy, powerful family, Jesus chooses ordinary people to get the job done. And God still does that. He is no respecter of persons, which is a strange way of saying that he doesn't play favorites. And he does not play favorites with those whom he calls. And secondly, they were fledgling disciples. I mean, they were apprentices. They were babies when it came to learning how to be an apostle back when they first said yes and started following. And yet that was okay because God is so patient that he allows fledglings to come in and he'll just accept us where we are and take us to where he wants us to be. He sees potential. And thirdly, they were rough around the edges. When I say rough, I mean rough. They were really rough and had to knock off those rough edges and do some star polishing or diamond polishing because they were diamonds in the rough for sure. And it lets me know that he who began that good work in any one of us will be faithful to complete it. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I know, and I'm quoting from this other pastor I used to listen to years ago when I was on the way to college, Steve Brown had that deep voice. And he would always end his radio program by saying, I ain't nearly what I used to be but I ain't nearly what I'm going to be. And that lets me know that God still sees his disciples as in process, and we're a work in progress. So how can you tell when God is calling you to do something? 
If you're asking that question at all, if some of you have asked that question and said, how do I know? That's a good thing because it shows that you've got a disposition, a heart that's open to wanting God to speak to you because you want to know how to do that. That's the first step, and it's the most important step. The most important thing about discerning if God is calling you to do something is to have an open heart. God is still very active in speaking with his disciples, and anybody who starts to follow Jesus and look into his word and learn more about him is a disciple, which means that he didn't just stop with the 12. He's continuing to invite people into his work. He still invites us to be a part of things that we can't even imagine. I never would have thought way back when I was a very opinionated college student in Phoenix, Arizona, who thought that I would never be a pastor and said so out loud to my parents' friends in front of my parents <laughs> that I would be doing this for a living. But I, the one thing that I, okay, this is not my notes, I'm sorry, but this is a confession time for you. It says confess our sins one to another. The one time I got sent to the principal's office, one time, it was for reacting to a story that was being read in our class by a substitute teacher. It was a great story. I was just reacting the way I react because I get dramatic when I'm thinking about a good story. And I was reacting to it. He's talking about a pilot and somebody had shot the canopy off his jet and the wind was whipping at his eyebrows and I was going. <laughs> I thought it was something we were supposed to do was to get into the story, but I got sent to the principal's office. Little did I know that God would use that ability to get into stories to put me where I had to tell stories every week. Go figure. Okay, where was I? Anyway, he still speaks to us today, and he calls us by using us even the way we were made and put together. So some of you may be put together in different ways. It's okay. God's going to use you to accomplish his... He will. He'll use you too. He will. Now... Let me contrast two ways of looking at God's call for us and when he's calling us. Because a lot of people tend to think of uh, sort of a tightrope approach to following God's will. And they're thinking that they're walking this little thin tightrope. And they're going, oh man, if I step off the least little bit, even one inch in either direction, I'll fall right out of God's will. And it'll be terrible for me. I don't think we ought to be thinking about it that way. Instead, I think we need to be thinking about a pretty wide lane with boundaries on either side, and he gives us a lot of latitude. There's a lot of leeway within those boundaries in which we can still be a part of God's will and serve him and follow him and do the things he's asking us to do. That just can, takes the weight off, doesn't it? Because otherwise it's fear-based, and we know the scriptures tell us that fear is cast away by perfect love. And so we know that a loving God is going to call us to do something. He'll equip us for that, and we don't have to fear falling out of his will if we're just loving him back when he calls us to do something. For example, if you are trying to decide between two schools, let's say, and they both seem pretty close in terms of what they will provide for you, it looks like academically you can still get a really strong degree from either one of those schools, uh, you're going to go broke regardless of which one you go through. <laughs> So they're both pretty expensive, and you're really hoping that your parents love you a lot, and they're going to help out with that, and you're trying for all the scholarships. But one is only slightly farther away from your home than this one, and so you think, okay, I could still travel home for Thanksgiving. If those are so close together, you don't have to agonize over which one of those things is within God's will. When you get to the fork in the road, take it. That, that's funny. You can laugh at that. Okay. Right, moving along. So 
how do we get to know these boundaries that we're supposed to be within instead of walking a tightrope? How do you know that? Three things. First of all, read God's word. If you start to sense that God is calling you, let's say, to retaliate against somebody who hurt you really deeply, and you feel like, man, God, I would really like to punish that person. I really want to retaliate, and I know just the way I could do it too. And they would probably never even find out how, you know. You can look at God's word and just read through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and you'd find out, oh, man, I'm supposed to pray for those who persecute me. I'm supposed to love my enemies. God's word would help solidify for you that that's a wrong decision for you to retaliate. He's not telling you to do that. If you have a sense that you just have somebody in your life that you would just prefer to delete because they are so obnoxious and they are so hurtful to everybody around them, but you sense God's spirit in you thinking, yeah, I know, but I still need to forgive that person, don't I? Well, you don't have to go very far. You read the New Testament. You read the Bible and God's word is going to confirm for you. Yeah, you should probably forgive them. If you're feeling that nagging sense that you should forgive them, you should forgive them. In fact, not just seven times, but how about 70 times seven? Your tree may get planted a little farther away from somebody else's tree so that your branches aren't intermingling with each other as much as they used to. But when they do intermingle, God still gives you the ability to show compassion and love to them just the way Jesus shows compassion and love for you, even though you're an obnoxious person who's fallen way many more times than you think. And I only say that lovingly, of course. So how do we get to know these boundaries? The second way is get to know God's character. When you grow up, you get to know your parents really well. And I know that not all parents are perfect. You know, my wife and I did a pretty good job, but not everybody's parents are perfect, and so we, we get that messed up because sin gets involved. But we get to know our Heavenly Father really well by reading the Scriptures. And if you know your parent, you're going to know there are certain things they would not approve of. And I get an amen. There are certain things that you, somebody could just ask you, is this something? So if somebody were to come up to me, because I knew my dad really well when I was a kid. If somebody had come up to me and said, hey, I just talked to your dad, and he told me to tell you that you're supposed to do this thing. And if it was apart from what I knew my dad would approve of, I would say, no, he didn't. He did not. You're a liar. <laughs> Get out of here. And that's exactly what we need to do to the enemy because he's the father of lies. And every time we're in God's word, we get to know God's character. If we're starting to hear any kind of a voice, wherever it's coming from, if we understand that that goes against what God the Father is telling us we should be doing, we know it goes against his character. We just tell the enemy to get out. Say, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not going down that road. When you've been given God's word and you can immerse yourself into it, you start to become aware of God's character, then you don't have to worry as often because it starts to become very readily apparent. And God's spirit starts to work on you over time until it becomes very easy to say no. I mean, almost instantly. Uh, I was given an opportunity a few years ago to come have a search committee. They wanted to come and check me out because they were thinking about taking me. And I said, I don't have to pray about that one. I've not been released from the work that God has sent me to do at Living Water. There's no need for you guys to waste your time. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I, I already know the answer. And so sometimes it's not that easy, but sometimes it does get to be that easy when you've been walking with God long enough to be able to say, no, I, I don't have to even pray about that. I already have prayed about it. God has already given me his word. He's very strong about that. Boom, I'm ready to go with this one. Same thing about when you're open to that next step that he has for you. And you say, okay, God, I've given you carte blanche. 
I've given you the blank checkbook. You just write it in there. Whatever you want me to do next, I'm your man. I'm ready, like my pastor Lou had said. And sometimes when you pray those dangerous prayers, he'll show up very quickly and start to invite you into something. And it's pretty exciting when it does because then you're prepared in your heart and you can say, I know I have to say yes because I just prayed for that and he's given me the answer. And then thirdly, how do you get to know these boundaries? Hang around God's people. Hang around other people who are also trying to get to know God's character because together we start to help get a bigger and better picture, a more clear picture with more pixels, so to speak, of God's word. Because somebody may have a slightly different interpretation of this, not a wrong interpretation, but it's a different perspective that helps you see it more fully. You see more facets to a passage. And they remind you of things that you had forgotten. Because I don't know about you, but I don't remember all the stuff that I studied 40 years ago. So I have to continually be in the Word and surrounding myself with other people who are in the Word too. And it helps. Let's say that you're on the fence in trying to make a difficult decision. And you think, you know, I just have this little kind of nagging thing in the back of my mind that I'm not quite freed up yet. I don't have that sense of a green light from God yet to move forward with this decision. So you share that, that prayer request with the friends, the close circle of friends that you know care about you, they love you, and you know they're strong Christians, they're believers who are in the word because you trust them and their voice because it's being informed by the word and not by the world. And you share with them, this is what I'm wrestling with. Can you give me some insight? And if a couple of them say, you know, I had a friend that went through exactly the same situation, same thing. And that friend would tell me today, I wish I would have put it on pause and waited a little longer because I rushed it and I got into some stuff that was in over my head and I caused myself a lot of pain because of that. Maybe that's one way that God can use friends to help inform you biblically so that you can do the right thing. Because sometimes, this is what I really wish God would do in his prayer time answering back to me. I wish he would say, son, I'm going to make it abundantly clear. This is going to be a no from me. But if you'll say no now to this path that you're on, then that's going to free me up to say yes to the next step I want you to take. But until you say no to this one, I'm not freed up to do that. So you've kind of got me in a bind about being able to do that because you can't be open to both things at once. And God's not going to split us in half in his will. He's going to show us the perfect will. He said, so say no to this one. And then I'll show you what the next path is. I, I preached about this a few weeks ago and said that was the way it was when I was praying, God, could this girl be the one for me? And the answer was no. And I didn't really want to hear that from him. I was hoping he would just approve of my request. But what I didn't know at the time was that he was allowing that no to happen so that the one who came along, who sat in oratorio choir in the alto section, whew, would be the one. And she's been with me for almost 44 years now. But that's what I wish God would do. Instead, there's a, a sense that we have to take each of these things by faith because he's not going to give you quite that much information yet. That's why we need to get to know his character, surround ourselves with friends, and immerse ourselves in his word because it's amazing how he'll give us just the right word at the right time to help give us and push us over the edge in making the right call when we're facing a big decision like that. And then one more thing. Allow God to say no or not yet when you are asking him to show you what that next thing is. With Lou, it was instantaneous. Yes, the phone rang. Can you preach for me? Yes, I can. It'll be this coming Sunday. I'll get my notes out. You know, it was just immediate like that. But sometimes it's a not yet. And as I've preached in the past, sometimes those not yets mean that he is having to reorganize things in the background 
Because he knows that, that Romans 8.28 is going to come true. All things are working together for good for those who are called according to his purposes and who love him. So he's organizing all that so that when the time does come, in the fullness of that time, then when you're obedient and you step into what it was he invited you to do, he has organized things that you could not have set in motion yourself, and it makes it so much more fruitful. My dad's story, I mentioned it. He tried to get into the military back in World War II. He had two brothers who served. He wanted so badly to serve. He had a slight heart murmur, and he was turned down every time he tried. And he tried every one of them. They kept saying, nope, nope, nope. The heart was the last thing to go with him. Little did they know. I mean, it was as strong as an ox. But God allowed that to take place. I don't know if he caused it or not, but he allows it in his permissive will, perhaps. It doesn't really matter. But what matters is that God's call on my dad's life was peculiar because a friend invited him out to Arizona, which was really a pioneer state back then in the 50s. And he said, there are so many opportunities with people flooding out here to move out here. We need to start new churches. Can you come help us do that? He was a bivocational minister, kind of slash missionary because he was a church planter and helped these guys. 35 years of ministry out there, 13 churches exist today because my dad said yes to that because of a no that he couldn't get into the military. Sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's a not yet. Uh, I got a chance to go to Scotland on one of the three times that I've been there. Oh, hi, it's great. And my friend Mike went with me on one of those trips. We wanted to go at a particular month. The circumstances weren't quite right here. We went in a different month, but it was an off season, which turned out to be great because the people who hosted us took us different places and we got in with no problems. And what really happened, and this is the thing that I saw in retrospect that God was doing the most, God was softening my friend's heart. He was kind of, uh, I was a Paul and he was a Timothy at that stage. I think we're much more equal now, but that was several years ago. And he was wrestling through a couple of big decisions in his life. And because we had lots of time to walk and to be in the train station together and to, to do some other things, we would not have had the same opportunity had we gone at a different time. God was doing a huge work in that guy's life. And it was shortly after that that my friend Mike met the lady that he wound up marrying. And they've got a beautiful family now. So I can see in retrospect that sometimes when God says, not yet, we don't need to get antsy about that. We can just hit the pause button and say, okay, God, whatever you want for me, here's the blank check. If it's not yet, I want to be ready, but show me when the time is right, and then I'll go. Let me close with this true story and something for you to chew on about the fact that sometimes God calls us in unusual ways, and just even including the times that sometimes we think, I don't think I'm really very, very valuable for your kingdom, Lord. You know, I think my usefulness is up. <clears throat> How could you use a person like me? Well, check this one out. It's like, I'll be right here. You can see John 16, 12 through 15, where Jesus is getting ready to leave his apostles at that time. And he says, but don't fear because even though your sorrow is going to be, your grief is going to be awful for a time, but joy is going to come in the morning. And I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, the comforter, to come alongside you, the paraclete. And he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to remind you of all these things that I've told you. And He's going to empower you to do all these things that I've commanded you to do. So that was sort of, I'll be right here thinking about what God is promising through his Holy Spirit. But it also ties into this story. How many of you know how the voice actor got the part of E.T.? Anybody know that? No, that's a trick question. I didn't either. 
I just read it this week, so I thought I'd pass that along. I had no clue. I didn't have any idea. I figured maybe they took somebody's voice and altered it digitally, something like that. That wasn't the case. They were having a Dickens of a time on Steven Spielberg's, uh, Spielberg's film, finding just the right voice actor to voice that puppet or whatever that thing was that became E.T. They said, how do you, how do you quantify that? What is it that we're looking for? And nobody could really put it into good terms. But they knew that toward the end of his time on earth, he was going to be starting to become breathless. He would sort of catch his breath from time to time, and they figured maybe he would start to be a little gravelly. So one of the technicians that was working on E.T. with Spielberg was in a store, and he overheard this older lady talking to a shop worker, the clerk. And he heard this kind of gravelly voice that would sort of have a catch in it from time to time, and it was a little breathy. So he went up to this lady and gave a business card to her on the way out of the store that day and say, he said, could you come in and audition for us? We're working on a little project. <laughs> and so that's how Pat Welsh became the voice of E.T. She had been a voice actor trainer for how people should pronounce things correctly. So she had worked with her voice for years, but then she destroyed her voice by smoking. Don't smoke, especially if you, well, I guess unless you want the job as voice of E.T., but okay, that analogy went right out the window. Trust me, don't smoke. Just don't do that to yourselves. But he said that was the voice we were looking for. And so she went down in one of the biggest blockbuster, huge movies in history. And that's how Pat Welsh came along. Now, I doubt seriously. Now, God can prove me wrong. I hope he does. That'd be cool. I doubt that when you're in the store... If you go to Kroger to pick up a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread this afternoon, I doubt that somebody's going to come up to you on the way out the door and say, you need to come in for an audition because God has something for you to do. I don't think it's going to happen that way. But it can certainly feel that way if we open ourselves to what God has for us to do because he still has so many hundreds and thousands of little tasks for each of us to be a part of. And even though you may think, but I don't have much to give him. Neither did those 12 yahoos. They were ordinary people, and God did something extraordinary with them. So whatever's going to happen, even this week, if you'll open yourself up to whatever God has in store for you, listen, get into the Word, surround yourself with other people who bring the Holy Spirit out in you, the Holy Spirit of God. I heard one pastor say, he brings out the God in you. I don't like that phrase because there's no God in us unless it's Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit that's indwelling in the heart of a believer, and then there's a God in me. It's not because of me. Hang around with people like that. Get into the Word. Immerse yourself. Get to know God's character, and then pray for God to show you what those tasks are because he will draw you into situations so that you can be part of his redemptive plan, and I know he can do so, and he's continuing to do so, and he'll do it through you. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that as we open ourselves up to you, as we immerse ourselves in the word and surround ourselves with your people, that you will speak even more often and more clearly as we become agents of redemption in our world wherever we live, work, and play. And I pray that you'll do that this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.